Morning, church. I wish we could meet uh, this morning under better circumstances, Uh, but I want to echo Unsu's words and just how thankful I am and also how encouraged I am, especially being only a Houstonian for six weeks, uh, to see our HCC family step up to the call to aid our family and our neighbors and our friends that it wasn't just a particular demographic of our church either, but like Unsu was saying, it was people from all different life stages, those who were singles, those who were married, those who had kids, that all donned gloves and hammers and wrenches just to help a neighbor in need. And that scene encouraged me more this week than anything else. Uh, So before we talk and preach God's word this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are a God who knows us very well. You know our hearts, you know our minds, but Lord, you also know the frustration and the anger and the confusion that lays within. And there are no words that sometimes can express the grief and the loss that some of us have felt this week, uh, especially after this storm. But Lord, we thank you that you gave us strength to be here this morning. And we pray that your spirit would speak to us words of comfort, words of encouragement, and also words of strength. To remember that you are a God who has not left us nor abandoned us, but a God who is still with us. And Father, we pray that as your word is preached, that it would be done so faithfully. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I said earlier, being only in Houston for six weeks, I really didn't know what to expect in light of this storm. Uh, When I was in small groups, some people said, oh, it's just going to pass by. Others said they went to HEB to stock up water and even went on Amazon Prime to order food to make sure they had enough things for the storm. And so my wife and I were thinking, well, what do we do? How bad is it really going to be? And it's only the last few days as we went out to work on homes, as we surveyed the different homes, that we saw just what great devastation this storm really caused. As we saw sofas, bookshelves, beds, even family heirlooms lay on the sidewalk getting ready to be picked up. And it's a sight that you can't really even put words to, especially as families who have lost so much. And I'm still trying to even wrap my mind around it. Because for those of us who've been cleaning up these houses, these are just waterlogged items that will develop mold and they need to be taken out. But for families, they're not just items. They're just not things. That black Yamaha bar piano that sits in the living room, it's not just a piano. It's the place where your daughter played her first tunes. It's where she practiced for her recitals. It's the place where music of Mozart and Beethoven would fill your home. And now it's silent, taken out and put on a curb. It's not just a thing. 
It's a memory. It's a part of your life. And the storm has not just taken your things, but it's also taken a part of your life with it. And it hurts, and it grieves you, and it moves you. Because how can you move on? And disasters cause us to think about the future. What is tomorrow going to bring? How are we going to actually recover the things that have been lost? What will even tomorrow look like? When will there be a semblance of the life that I once had? And how do I grieve? Our mind turns to the future. It wonders, it thinks, and anxiety rises within us. So what does give us the resolve to move on? What gives us the strength to wake up tomorrow, to really have strength to face the loss, the grief, and to move on? Where do we find that hope? And that's a question that we're going to talk about this morning, is where do we find our hope and our strength as those of us who call on Christ as our Lord and Savior? And, you know, hope is an interesting thing because it is an anticipation that things will get better. But how do we as Christians, how do we as believers know things will actually get better, especially when all around us is destruction? And to answer that question, we're going to turn to the life of a man who's acquainted with loss. A man who knew what it meant to leave his home and never to see it again. The year 605 BC may not mean very much to you, but it was a date that meant a lot to Daniel, just as 2017 will mean a lot to all of those who live here in Houston because of Hurricane Harvey. You see, 605 BC, Daniel can remember the Babylonians coming over the hill, siege works, battering rams, chariots, and soldiers. They weren't coming to welcome Judah, but they were coming to besiege it, to destroy it, to conquer it. And as Babylon destroyed the city of Jerusalem, it took hundreds of Judeans into exile. Judeans from the royal family and those who were crafted skilled workers, the cultured people of the city. And as Daniel walked off to the city of Babylon in shackles and in chains, I can't help but wonder, what did Daniel think as he looked back on his city? A city that now was under ruin. The fires were just beginning to abate the holes in the wall were still very visible. I can't help but wonder, what did he think about? Did he think about the bread shop on Straight Street in Jerusalem that he used to know when to buy warm bread? Did he think about the house of his youth that was now ruined? Did he think about his friends who he used to play with and yet 
in the midst of the chaos, they didn't know where he was. Do you think about the temple and the gates in which he used to walk through to worship God, that now the stones were on top of each other? Did he wonder, when will I ever return home? Did he ponder the words of the prophets Ezekiel or Jeremiah, who said the Babylonians were coming? What did Daniel think about as he made that long march, step by step, day by day, into a city that he's never seen, to a people that he's never actually been under the thumb of? Now, I don't know what he thought, but I really do wonder, because he had lost everything. Now, Daniel, as he entered into Babylon, and as he started to acclimate to his new home, he was selected, chosen amongst his friends as well to become leaders, to become cultured in the, in the studies and in the education of Babylon. That he was set to serve a king that was not Israelite, not Jewish, not Judean, but Babylonian. And as he served in this warm place, I wonder if he asked the question, Lord, how do I have strength to get through the next day? Where do we, as Judean exiles, who no longer have a home, have hope? And God doesn't give them a promise of a new home or a new city. But he gives them a vision through a dream. A very odd dream. And a dream not to a Jew, but to a pagan. A person who didn't even believe in God. And this isn't the first time that God had done this. Because if you remember back in the book of Genesis, God gave the pagan king Pharaoh a dream. And so we see this dream specifically in the text of Daniel chapter 2. And that's where we're going to turn our attention to this morning. So Daniel chapter 2. Hopefully you're there uh, because you're following along with this morning's Bible reading. But Daniel follows the book of Ezekiel. And that's where you're going to find it. So if you see Ezekiel, it will be the next book. Now, we won't be reading the whole chapter because this is considered one of the longest chapters in the Bible. And so we're just going to highlight and look at certain sections this morning to consider. And in this text, we're going to see a particular problem, and we're going to see a solution, and also an application from this text. We're going to see a dilemma, a challenge, an issue, and then we're going to see a resolution and something that we can do. So let's look first at the problem. What is the particular problem that we see in Daniel chapter 2? In Daniel chapter 2, we see this issue that God's message is a mystery to unbelievers. To those who don't know God, they oftentimes don't know what God is saying. In fact, it's confusing. And God's message seems to be veiled and is a mystery. And even the Babylonians, especially in this text, 
we're trying to figure out what is God actually trying to say. And the Babylonians couldn't make sense of this dream, this divine memo that they understood was some kind of communication from the divine to us. Now, again, how did God send this memo? It was through a dream. But the problem for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was that he couldn't understand what the dream meant. And so he calls a cabinet meeting in the morning. He calls the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, a.k.a. the Chaldeans, to recount the dream and to give its interpretation. Now we think to ourselves, okay, this is kind of weird. You ask your cabinet to come in to help you interpret the dream. But you tell them, no, no, no. I just don't want you to interpret it. I want you to retell it to me. I want you to recount it. Why did the king want his magicians, sorcerers, enchanters to recount the dream? And the reason being is because they could make up any interpretation they wanted if he told them the dream. But he wanted to know that the interpretation of that dream was sure. And I mean, we do this all the time as well. If you think about it, if you receive an email or text that you don't quite understand, you don't ask the sender. You ask your friend. You ask your family. You call your spouse over and ask, what do you think so-and-so means. Now, if they're your friend, they'll try and tell you what you want to hear, and sometimes they may get it right. And for those of you who are married or are dating, you understand that sometimes when you receive a text from the opposite gender, let's say a guy receives a text from a gal saying, I like to get coffee sometime. And you ask your friends, hey, what do you think she meant? Now, if your friends really want the relationship to go, forward, then they'll say, she's into you, right? You know, it means that she likes you. Now, the other people might say, ah, oh, it's just a coffee. It's just coffee. It means nothing. But you never really ask the source, right? You never ask the sender. But Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know from the source, from the person who sent it, what is this dream trying to say? And that's the problem. The Chaldeans couldn't recount it. They couldn't tell him what the dream was unless Nebuchadnezzar shared. And therefore, the Chaldeans couldn't give an interpretation either. So read with me in verse 10, because this is where we see this. In verse 10, it says this, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. They say, this is impossible. We can't tell your dream back to you. But they recognize one thing. They recognize, yeah, we can't retell the dream to you. Only someone who is divine can. Only someone up there could recount your dream. And in verse 11, it says, the king, 
the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, these Chaldeans recognize, hey, do you know a god in your Rolex? Do you know a god in your contact list? No. I don't know one. Do you? No. There is no one among us who's able to do this. It's going to require a miracle. It's going to require some kind of divine intervention. Now, it's interesting because I think we, as a humanity, have received a message as well. A message that is confusing, a message that is quite mysterious. Now, it's not in dreams, but it's in the message of a broken world that people can't seem to make sense of it. Because it seems for some reason everything in this world proceeds towards chaos, towards destruction. If anything is left for any amount of time, it begins to decay. Bread left alone develops mold. Cars left unmaintained begin to rust and become scrap metal. Clothes unprotected become food for moths. And we live in a world that is filled with disaster. We have tornadoes that rip apart homes, earthquakes that separate the earth, and rain that causes floodwaters to increase. We live in a world that seems to be on the verge of self-destruction. And people try and resolve it. They try to explain it. They try and look for a solution. And, I mean, some believe in karma that... You know, the reason why disaster befalls me is because I did something wrong. I did something really bad. I got angry at my spouse. That's why I got into this accident on the way to work, right? Um, and international papers say that because of this rise in white supremacy, that disaster has come upon this state. That there has to be an explanation that it's a tit-for-tat world. You get what you dish out. And if that's the case, though then how come more bad does not happen to me? Because I don't know for you, but I know for myself, I'm much more wicked than the suit and tie will tell you, both in mind and heart and also in action. And it just doesn't make sense. Why is it that God, there is grace given to some and grace not given to others. But for God's people, for those of us who are Christian, we recognize that the existence of a broken world creates within us a longing, a desire for another world, a world that is not here, a world in which there will one day be no suffering, no pain or grief. Because this world is not meant to be forever. And so where do we see this? How do we know this? How do we know the message of God? Well, it's simply this. The solution is that God reveals the message of his kingdom to his people. For those of us who are believers, we know of a kingdom that is yet to come, a king who is returning to set everything right. And we spent the last few months talking about that kingdom a message about that kingdom, a sermon on the mount where the king himself told us 
of what we should expect. Now, this revelation didn't only happen in the New Testament, but it also happens in the Old. Because when Nebuchadnezzar hears that his council, his cabinet, can't recount this dream, he gives an order for all of them to be executed. Rounded up. Killed. But Daniel stops Ariok, the chief executioner, and says, wait, 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 wait. Let me ask the king for a delay. And let me ask my God to intervene. So he gets together with his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They gather together and pray. And Daniel receives a vision, a dream, and the interpretation in a night vision. And they rejoice. Why? Because God is the source of that revelation. He is the one who reveals it to them. Because in verse 20, Daniel says this blessing to God. And it says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. That Daniel prays to a God who is sovereign, a God who controls the change of times, the change of fall to winter to spring to summer. He's the one who controls the changing of the color of the leaves of trees as they go from green to brown. God is the one who knows the number of snowflakes that fall in the mountains every winter. He is a God who knows all things and sovereign over all things. He appoints rulers and government officials, presidents, senators, representatives, and judges. And he's also the one who removes them. He is sovereign. And Daniel thanks him for answering. He expresses gratitude to God in verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. That we as believers look to a God who is not silent or deaf, but a God who knows the deepest longings and struggles of our souls. That we know that he hears us. That we can assail him with our frustration and our anger and even our questions. And if you don't believe me, read the book of Psalms. And realize that oftentimes, God's people lament and cry out to him. And while God alone has the answers, God uses his people as the messenger to reveal that message to others. And in our text's particular case, God uses Daniel to recount the dream and give its interpretation. In verse 26, it says this, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and his interpretation? And verse 27, it continues. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And Daniel recounts the dream. King, you saw a statue, a statue of different types of material, a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, 
You saw thighs of bronze and legs of iron and also feet mixed of clay and iron. These particular materials represent kingdoms, empires that will come. The gold, of course, being yours. And then the next kingdom, the one in silver, the Medo-Persian Empire that will come as well. And then after them, a kingdom of bronze. The Greeks will rule the world. And after them will rise an empire of iron, the Roman Empire. But not only does Daniel tell them about the message of what is to come, but the contents of that message is about another kingdom that will come after these human ones, a kingdom that is represented by stone. Now, if you look in verse 34, you see the stone mentioned. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Now, you may be wondering, why is there a contrast between a statue and a stone? Well, a statue requires hammer, chisel, human effort, human design. But this particular stone was cut by no human hand. It was nothing human made. And this kingdom will be very different because it is a divine one. And we see that this stone will destroy all these human kingdoms. And they will become like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carries them away. And not a trace of them will be found. Not a trace of these human empires will be left. But this kingdom of God that is coming, it will be forever. Now who is this stone? What is this stone? And the stone is a type representing Christ, who says himself that he is the cornerstone of our faith, that it was inaugurated with his death and resurrection, but also that Jesus is coming back. And this time, he's not coming back as a servant. He's not coming back as a person who will give his life on a cross. He's going to come back with eyes of fire, with a sword protruding from his mouth, as a king who is going to conquer and establish a home for his people on this earth. So we notice that this stone also becomes a mountain, right? It says so in the following verse, in verse 35. Um, it says, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That mountains were representations of the wealthy, the well-off of social status. That's where palaces were, where kingdoms were built upon. And these were the places where people met with God. Moses went up the mountain to receive the law. Elijah went up the mountain to hear the voice of God. Jesus went up the mountain and became transfigured. And Jesus will also be returning on a mountain as well. So what's the application? What are we to do in light of knowing that God has revealed to believers the kingdom that is coming? And the application is this, that we should find hope in the coming of God's future kingdom. That we anticipate God's kingdom with optimism, that things will get better, 
Now, it may not get better in our lifetimes, but it is coming, and it is sure. And why do we expect God's kingdom? Is because it's going to last forever. It's not going to be temporary. It's not going to be short, but it's going to be forever. In verse 44, it says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. That no bullet, missile, or shell is going to be able to damage the kingdom of God. It shall never be destroyed. No disaster, no rain, nor flood will be able to affect it. There won't be a people who will be able to rise up against it. And it will not be left to another people. And we also see that God's kingdom will overcome the world. And it continues in verse 44. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. That it will overcome inequality, poverty, injustice. Because God will come and establish a place where justice, equality, and peace will reign. And it's going to be unlike anything that we've ever seen. And in case you doubt whether or not this kingdom will come, verse 45 says otherwise. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure, that God's kingdom will come. That it's not just a page on a fairy tale. It's not just like a dream that dissipates in the morning. Just as you know the sun will rise, God's kingdom is coming and the king is returning. So this message of the coming kingdom would have comforted the Judean exiles who worked in a foreign land for foreign bosses that they could look for with expectation that after 70 years there would be deliverance. This would not be the status quo. There is a change coming. But meanwhile, meanwhile, we live each day with hope, with faith, with anticipation. And how much more so do we as Christians live in hope, knowing that the God's kingdom is coming? Because we have a Savior who left his home to die on a cross and rise again to ensure that we have a home, that we have a place in this kingdom. And so we receive this kingdom just in part through the presence of the Holy Spirit that is coming. And though we have suffered much loss, we recognize that we're merely sojourners who are passing this world by. That our tickets have been punched and our passports have been stamped and that we anticipate the coming of this kingdom. And for those of you who have yet to place your faith in Christ, it's not too late to have that same hope either that you can have that eager anticipation of God's kingdom by placing your faith in Christ and what he has done for you. So we've talked about a problem, solution, and application from the text. The problem being that God's message is a mystery to unbelievers, but the solution is that God has revealed the message of his kingdom to his people. And the application for us is that we find hope the coming of his kingdom. That even in the midst of tragedy, 
we have something to look forward to. And does hope really make a difference? Does it really change our hearts and our minds? And I want to say it does. A number of years ago, researchers performed this experiment to see what the effect of hope was on those undergoing hardship. So in this laboratory, there are two sets of laboratory rats. Both were placed in a tub of water. Now, the first set was set in the tub of water, and within an hour, all the rats drowned. But the other set, they periodically lifted in and out of the water. And so when they left the, water, the rats in the water, they found that they swam for almost 24 hours because they knew that someone was going to fetch them out of that miserable situation and circumstance and to deliver and rescue them. Now, if these animals could somehow find hope in just staying afloat a little longer, that someone would come down and rescue them. If hope holds so much power for unthinking animals, how much greater of an effect does it have on us, especially those who anticipate the coming of our king and the kingdom in which he brings?